And now, a special presentation of Dinner with Racers. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. And uh, welcome to another installment of Dinner with Racers. Dinner with Racers. Special edition. We have a TV show now. So once again, if you've been following the internet, listening to other podcasts, you'll know we are now on Amazon Prime. The only professional sports car racing based podcast that's on Amazon Prime as well as a podcast. Is that true? I sure. It is now. I've, we yep, said so. Sure. So this is another sort of special edition podcast, if you will, uh, uh, in episode number two. Of our Amazon Prime series, we focus on a gentleman by the name of Smokey Eunuch. Yeah, Smokey Eunuch is a absolute legend of the automotive industry, not just racing. The guy is responsible for so many things. He's widely regarded as one of the greatest mechanics of all time, and we were so honored that Trish Eunuch welcomed us into her home, sat down with us, and gave us so much information that we couldn't get it all into the episode, and it's in a whole episode about him. So this is a little bit more Trish Eunuch, all about Smokey, and we had an amazing meal. So let's, let's get into some back. Yeah. So uh, when we first came out in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, I just happened to be watching a television show on a network, and, and they did a little segment about uh, Smokey Eunuch, who I was already familiar with. Yeah. And I just tweeted something out about how he seemed like a guy we would have both loved to have sat down with and had no idea how he'd take to us. And within a few minutes of that tweet, back in like 2016, uh, Trish Eunuch replied. The Trish Eunuch. Well, yeah, Smokey's daughter. Yeah. Right back. And I remember reading that going, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so little did we know over the years, uh, Trish and ourselves would stay in touch. And, and Trish has always been a fan of what we do. And she's obviously a, a lover of motorsports as a whole. And so uh, when this opportunity to do a documentary series came out, she was one of the first people we thought we should reach out to because we knew that Smokey's story, the way we thought it should be told, hadn't been told yet. Right. And she tells it. Yeah. Something that's important to realize that we didn't know at the time, Trish has listened to every single episode of our podcast. Yeah. She knows all the jokes. So as we're setting up in her kitchen, talking about the show a little bit, she mentions this and then we suddenly were like, oh, we got to... We got to do a good job here because she knows everything about us. Yeah. It's kind of like seeing behind the curtain. So it's really neat to have that experience with her. And now she knows how bad we are, how completely <laughs> unorganized we really are when we walk into these things and how it all comes down to editing. the edit. <laughs> so Smokey, if you don't know anything about him, haven't been able to watch the show yet. He was a very controversial figure in the motorsports scene. However, absolute genius of an engineer no schooling no traditional training so the guy really could have done anything and did do some amazing things but also he was a real personality so you'll learn a lot of things about Smokey through the eyes of his daughter Trish who tells us all the good all the bad all the ugly what's it like to have Smokey as your dad because if uh, if you didn't know Smokey has a book that you can get <laughs> called uh, the best damn garage in town it is Effectively unedited, so it's 1,100 pages. <laughs> 1,100 pages all about him. Right. Um, and it gets into some graphic personal details. Yes. And uh, his daughter gets to uh, proofread all of it. So, And we, of course, brought that up. <laughs> as well as many other things. But it, it's one of these episodes where 
There is so much information on the guy. He did so many cool things that we wanted to give you guys a little bit more information, a little bit more story time. We get comments all the time about the Alan Kowicki special we did, so we thought let's just keep doing that kind of thing if we think it's worth it. So we went to Daytona Beach, Florida at Trish's home and met with her family and her uh, 50 different pets, and uh, they cooked for us. Yeah, we had a crawfish broil, like full-on... Sean and I put down newspaper on the table. We helped set dishes out and everything. And they went and broiled like crawfish and shrimp and all these things, corn. And uh, so I had crawfish and shrimp. I had a couple beers. And I think, what did you have? You had a, a shot of... Uh... Epinephrine. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. epinephrine yeah. is what I had. Yeah. But it was a good time. Sure. Now, once again, because they're in Daytona and I live in Atlanta, we just drove on down to Daytona and... Oh, we drove a uh, Acura MDX. We did. And uh, that Acura MDX had uh, four brand new beautiful tires. Continental. Tires. Continental. Tires. Continental. Tires. Continental tires. Cross contact. LX. <laughs> we should really go outside <laughs> we should and look, look this stuff up. <laughs> All right, Trish Unick. And remember. If, uh, if you like what she says here and you're not familiar, check it out on Amazon Prime and learn everything you can about Smokey. Amazon Prime! Woo! Episode number two, Smokey, will arrive this holiday weekend, so please come check it out. And if you like the stories that you hear from Trish or you like what you see on the show, why not buy the book at SmokeyUnic.com. There might be a few different avenues that you can buy the book from, but SmokeyUnic.com is the one that goes directly to the Unic family and they benefit the most from it. So if you're going to buy the book, Buy it straight from SmokeyUnic.com. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. This is the first time I've ever had a cat just hanging out with the recording What do you mean, a cat? No, no, like there's literally just a cat. Yeah, this one's eyeballing me. Right, but this one's (laughs) sleeping on my gear. On the gear. (laughs) Yeah, he's just like, it's warm. It's warm. Yeah. I'm a part of this. Yeah, he's a supervisor. <laughs> Which, yeah. what, what's that cat's name? He's our new this is the cat Spotty. Okay, that's producer Spotty. Yeah, sound operator. Sound, sound op, engineer. Sound op Spotty. Sound engineer. GPS engin- guy would find him in the truck in the back. Oh, really? He could get out to deliver a package. Spotty would go inspect the truck. <laughs> and he'd find him a block away. What do we have here? Yep. That's awesome. Okay. I've actually never done this before. The crawfish? Like the crawfish table royal oh, thing. Oh, okay. Just throw them okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a staple in the, in the eunuch household? Um, I can't say that Smokey ever ate it, but it is something we do often with guests. Yeah. Okay. Smokey is big in shrimp and potatoes. He was a real, literally meat and potatoes kind of guy. I think throwing the food into the center of a table and a bunch of newspapers is about as Smokey eunuch as we could have imagined. Yeah, the for, most for this deal. similar thing during race week, um, we would have the little table that I showed you that he built, um, and there were couches on either side of it where his, he and his friends would sit and we would do ribs. Oh, and yeah. so I would put a slab of ribs and the beans and the right, corn right. and lay it across the table and everybody could pick. It was not on newspaper, though. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking about this when we were setting up that, like, legends have dined here. So, like, during mm-hmm. Speed Weeks, especially in the old days when Speed Weeks was a real two weeks of... Mm-hmm. You know, a week of practice and then the qualifying races and then, you know, and then practice before the 500. Um, this would be the hangout. Smokey was a real homebody and he felt for his friends that were on the road for so long. So the rule was during Speed Week here in Daytona, um, 
that if it were 10 people or less, he gave us no notice. But otherwise, he'd call maybe 15 or 20 minutes in advance. But he felt for his friends that were on the road for so long, and he would bring them home for a home-cooked dinner. Uh-huh. And his friends were the Unzers and the Allisons and A.J. Foyt and Zora Dantov, and it was neat. So literally for your mom and then you, during that two-week period, at any given moment, anybody could show up. So you literally, at, on the ready... Were set for ten people to show at up at seven any o'clock. His dinner. Smokey would go to work at seven thirty in the morning. Yeah, every yeah. day he would come home for dinner around seven six thirty. But dinner was to be on the table at seven o'clock, and then once <laughs> dinner was over, he would go back somewhere around nine o'clock, and he would work until typically one or two in the morning. Wow! wow. Every so, day. Every drive day. home. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, do any of those? Obviously, you were pretty young. But do any of the names that would come by, did you care? Were you racing? I had no clue. Uh Um, They worked really hard to keep us out of racing, Mm -hmm. my mom and Smokey. And I call him Smokey because um, I was 19 years old and building a new building for my pet store at the time. Yeah. And I spent about 10 months working the switchboard at the shop, the race shop. And I realized the very first morning that I can't push the button and call dad. So I started Absolutely. calling Smokey. Yeah, right. And then because of the book and the business, I just, that's why I call him Smokey. It's really not out of disrespect. All we knew of racing was that it was what took Smokey, took dad from home. Yeah. Right. And we were to some degree resentful, especially Indianapolis. Because in those days when Smokey was racing Indy, you went from the very last week of April all the way through to the first week of June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Pocono was tacked on right on the back end. So he was gone for forever, and we didn't really know what this was. So move forward. I'm 19 years old. I'm in business for myself here in Daytona Beach, and I'm ordering something on the telephone. And I get to, it's from Washington State, and I get to Y-U-N, spelling my name. And the guy on the other side is like, oh, my God, are you, are you, <laughs> I'm like, what? Are you related to Smokey? And I'm like, yeah, he's my dad. Yeah. No way, you're kidding. And. I had no idea. Yeah. Had absolutely no idea. Really had no idea who he was or what he had done until I was working with him on his book. Uh-huh. If, for about four years before he died, he had started writing his autobiography. Right. He was doing a pit road tour with four Humpy Wheeler at Charlotte when Humpy was at Charlotte. And he realized as he was talking about the people on pit road and, and telling what was going on that this history was being lost. There's a lot of sanitized history and stuff out there, but the true history of racing, NASCAR racing, was gone or being lost. So he started writing it down. And as he was writing it down, he realized he was telling his own story in addition to racing. Well, my stepmom was his secretary or gal Friday until his health turned. And when he got sick, she focused her health on, or her attention on his health and keeping him well and all that. Mm-hmm. So I became the secretary of Gal Friday. So I'm working. I'm sorry, what are you saying? Girl Friday. Girl Friday. Gal Friday. Yeah, yeah. So I started working with this manuscript. The way Smokey wrote the book is that he used spiral notebooks and he wrote it longhand. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, what else are you do? And the right. stack of spiral notebooks was about two and a half foot tall. And he, you would type it into the computer and then print the entire chapter for him to edit. And we're now 19 years after his death. If Smokey hadn't died, he'd probably still be working on his book, just like any writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was when I realized who these people were that had populated our dinner table 
and what they were to the sport and what Smokey had done for the sport because they kept us so far insulated and out. I had no idea. So, like, say, Speed Weeks. Mm-hmm. So people are coming through and they're eating. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's Foyt. It's, it's Andretti. Oh, yeah. It's Allison's. Mm-hmm. Yes. You've got no clue. None. No. None. Uh, there was the night before the 500 one year and before the corporate involvement and stuff like that where racers had to do corporate dinners and appearances aj foyt it was the year that kung fu had come out (laughs) and Uh we all remember that yeah right yeah okay aj was on the floor wrestling with my two brothers and he got a karate kick across the throat Mm. And we, AJ Foyt did. AJ did. From your brothers. From our brothers. Okay. Had it coming. And we really, <laughs> we really thought AJ was going to have to go to the emergency room because he yeah. was having a hard time breathing. So, but we had no idea. Because <laughs> your brother crushed his windpipe. Yeah. Yeah. Who, is it the one that went on to be a police officer? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. It all adds up. <laughs> all right. So, um, in the case of this, uh, you know, we're looking to you to help sort of set some of the, the narrative of just the biography itself. I would say between the three of us at this table, you probably knew him the best. Uh, so if you, were, if you were going to explain to somebody who'd never heard of Smokey, um, how would you describe his, his upbringing? Oh, he grew up very poor in rural farm Pennsylvania. Um, dad was absent most of the time. His dad. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. His daddy was gone most of the time. He was a carpenter and he was on the road making a living. Um, his mom, my grandmother, was probably a little bit crazy. She ultimately killed herself by stepping into highway traffic. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, mom and dad fought like cats and dogs. Yeah. And um, after his dad was dead, he had to quit school to maintain the farm right. for a family income. Right. There was a little bit of time when he actually served jail time because his mom threw him in jail for non-support. <laughs> Interesting times. Wow. So as a teenager, you could be thrown into jail. Apparently, if you in Pennsylvania, going yeah. to take care of the, the matriarch. Yep. So he you hear that Kathy Heckman. <laughs> he decided the best place for him was the service. He wanted to serve his country. Yeah. He was very proud to be an American and proud of his service. So he got a forged birth certificate because he'd been born on the farm and didn't have a birth certificate. So there was a local Catholic priest who made a little bit of money doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Who would just be like, he's 17, signed a priest. That Mm -hmm. sounds sounds Well, and and they had... Biblical. (laughs) They didn't know for sure what his middle name was. So he had the choice of Henry or John. Mm -hmm. He went with Henry. So he went off to the service where he um, served really all over the globe. And he joined right at the start of the war. Did. But before he joined the service, so as a teenager, you know, he was effectively had to take care of the family. He did. And he was, when they were farming, he, um, it was hard work and they had a horse named Big Bill and he hated Big Bill. And it's interesting that the <laughs> horse's name was Bill. Yep. Um, Big Bill. Who <laughs> knew? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Literally. <yeah. laughs> he hated the horse and the horse probably hated him. And he decided there was an easier way of doing it, so he built a tractor. Right. He gathered parts and pieces and built a tractor to make his work life easier. Yeah. And that was the start of, or his documented start of his creativity. Right. I'll tell you, even then, he was fairly mechanical. I remember reading yes. in the book that he, he had his own motorcycle that mm-hmm. he was kind of zooming up and he had to hide it. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounded like he was always that guy that yeah. was kind of thrill-seeking. Well, and that's how he got his nickname. Right. It's yeah. always a common question. He was, he'd gotten a motorcycle from surplus and he Mm -hmm. lucked out that it was a motorcycle and he raced it in the local 
uh, dirt track, I guess. Right. No. And some of the guys from work had come to watch him. And his motorcycle was not tuned very well, and it smoked like crazy. And so the next day when he went to work, he was smoky. Right. And That's awesome. it stuck for the rest of his days. He yeah. actually made it his legal name before he died. Nice. Wait, what? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, his legal name. And my... Um, he had two groups of kids. He was married three times, and okay. the first child from the first marriage, that poor guy's name is Smokey Albert, and he's legally Smokey. Wow. So there's another Smokey eunuch out there. Yep. <laughs> so there is a difference between letting the cat get away with it on the table. Oh, this is not. And flat out just feeding yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> you're actually feeding the cat more than you're eating yourself. <laughs> he's not talking. <laughs> <laughs> And if I keep him fed, he stays over there. If I don't feed him, he's probably going to try and help himself. Whatever you got to tell yourself you here. Think. You're yeah, an enabler. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Dad uh, wasn't necessarily around to help him play with the toys, so to speak. So, no. But when he was a kid, his mechanical acumen didn't come necessarily from being taught at home and Dad sitting there twink- tinkering with him in the garage. No, like not he at all. literally figured out all of his own yes. mechanical stuff. Mm-hmm. And the way he likes to put it is you can learn everything you need in the library. Exactly. Yeah. And forever, he was a voracious reader and he would go to, he would go to library sales. Libraries, they keep track of what's checked out. And if it's not checked out often enough, it gets put in the scrap pile and it's sold or donated yeah. somewhere. And he would buy physics and chemi- chemistry texts yeah. and read them. And um, just sit down and read just chemistry texts. Kind text. of self-taught. Yeah. 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 So mechanically, he's starting to make a name for himself. He's got his own motorcycle. He's built a tractor to make work on the farm easier for mm-hmm. himself. And then decides to go and join the military right. right as World War II is really starting to hit the fan. Mm-hmm. And ends up becoming a pilot. Yeah. And I mean, who wouldn't want to, if you were going into the service, wouldn't you want to be a fighter pilot? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, he had a, the guys at work played a joke on him and uh, he was welding at work and it damaged his vision. So he couldn't, could no longer be the fighter pilot. Right. So. So then how does he end up becoming a, was it B-29? B-17. Well, he did both. He ends up flying in something like 50 yeah. successful missions, missions and and all uh what do they say what's the phrase they was used theater like all theaters of the war yes yeah so mm-hmm. he ends up flying pretty much in all the like in the pacific theater over germany and sees some terrible things awful stuff and writes about it very openly and vividly in his book which you know we're both war you know and we're interested in war history mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, so when you find out that one of the greatest, you know, racing mechanics of all time also had this really prolific war career, right. it's pretty, pretty interesting to read. The interesting thing was we had no idea about that. Oh. Um, he never talked about it. And I've since learned that a lot of the people that refer, refer to as the greatest generation, they didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so it wasn't something that he spoke about. He came back with scrapbooks that he had created. Because he spent a little bit of time being a photographer, making mm-hmm. side money that way, and he took pictures, and he had large format scrapbooks that he glued stuff in, and the pictures of where he'd been, and the planes that he built, and that sort of stuff. But the thing I can't get past is that you've got dozens and dozens of flights information, and these aren't 35-year-olds with 20 years of right. flying experience. Grizzled. These, these yeah. are 18-year-olds who literally just learned how to fly this six months ago. Yeah. Their whole yeah. life ahead of them, yeah. and so many of them didn't come home. Yeah. yeah. Knowing Smokey the way you did, um, I mean, I assume to a certain extent that kind of survival is very much luck of the draw, but uh, do you think there was anything specific to Smokey's character that allowed him to go on so many missions? Um, 
Sure, there's a combination of stubbornness. And there's also, um, he was such a hard worker, and he was so proud and proud to be an American. Um, and they were just, they were idealistic. They wanted to beat Hitler, yeah. you know? Uh, you, so you didn't know any of the World War II stories literally mm -hmm. until you wrote the book, because as was typical of that generation, no one talked about it. Yeah, I was editing the book. Mm -hmm. um, is there any story about the war that really stuck out to you? Um, the part where he went to um, the Vatican, because he was raised a Catholic, okay. and he, around the Vatican, the streets outside, and the desperately poor people, and the beggars, and the hungry, and then you go into the gates, and it's gold, and it's opulence, and there's so much, and he walked away from his faith at that point. Because it's just the disparity just of the whole thing. the inequity, and how can this be? How can you be here and be so comfortable and so everything, and they have nothing, and how can you not address that? Yeah. You say you only had a short amount of time with him because he was always working? Mm -hmm. Yeah. like Seven days a week. Yeah. Now, how was the rest of his staff? Like, were they as dedicated on time, or was it like he couldn't get people to work with him? Um, he had a couple of guys over the years mm -hmm. that worked – as crazily as he did yeah. um ralph johnson who was also a holly carburetor engineer he worked with mm -hmm. smoky for a long time and mm -hmm. he kept his schedule but he was pretty much alone in that time yeah. Yeah. one of the best stories we get from people because if you go to a show a trade show where people mm -hmm. uh, people always come to tell you smoky stories yeah. or when somebody calls to order something i'm the person that answers the phone and mm -hmm. i'll ask you how you found out about us People have stories, and one of the best stories is people would call at all hours of the day and night from all over the world wanting Smokey's advice. Sure, yeah. During the day, you would get the switchboard. Okay. And in the evening, if he was expecting a call or for whatever reason, he'd answer the phone. And sometimes he would answer people's questions under the guise of the watchman. Smokey's not here right now. What do you need? And so they would start posing their highly technical small block engine question or right, something, right, right. and he would answer them. And so hearing them talk about realizing through the course of their conversation that they were actually talking to Smokey yeah. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I'd like to kind of jump backwards a little bit for the video. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to pitch you a very broad question of, okay, so... Yeah. Smokey was your dad, and then can you just give us like in like five sentences or less the family history in terms of you know, uh, stepmom and all that kind of stuff. Okay. If that's okay. Just because I feel like we might want that in terms yeah. of setting that up. And yeah. Like it. So, okay. Um, so, Smokey was your dad. He was. Smokey was married three times. Um, his first marriage, immediately out of the service, there were three children born of that marriage. The second, when he came to Daytona Beach, there were, again, three children. And the third and final marriage was just my stepmom in his their later years, and there were no children there. So gets out of the service. He moves back stateside. And the guy that he had bunked with, because everything in the service is alphabetical. Mm -hmm. So the guy that he had bunked with was um, Willie Walker. Okay. And when they go back to New Jersey, Willie's located in the same rough area. They go back to New Jersey, where they both happen to be from. And Willie ends up marrying Smokey's sister, my Aunt Rini. Um, Smokey... Because you what do you do? You come back from war and you start a family because that's what they were programmed to do. And there were a lot of unfortunate marriages as a result of that. So he marries this woman. 
who by all accounts is a lovely woman. It just didn't work out so well for them. Because it was just a generation where you sort of like marry the first person you kind of yeah. meet. Like, Pretty much. We've been dating a week. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so she's a nurse and they have three kids and he is working in a truck shop. He's not excited about this, but he's working in a truck shop and it's very cold and he hated the cold weather. And so there's like most big repair places like that. There's the little man door and then there's the big roll up door to get the vehicles in and out. Okay. And his bay happens to be right next to the roll-up door. So his boss, when he would come in from outside, instead of using the man door, he liked the power trip of whacking the big roll-up yeah, door. Yeah, right. Would freeze this guy out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The guy and who's working for less than me. The snow would blow in, <laughs> and he's on the ground, and he's miserable. And he tells the guy, if you do that again, I'm going to quit. Yeah. Well, of course, what did the guy do? He went and did it again. So Smokey got a hammer out of his toolbox, and he went and he broke the button. To roll up the door, <laughs> loaded up his tools, and took him home. And he waited for his wife to get home. They lived in a travel trailer. Yeah. The trailer was hooked up, and he said, I'm going to Florida, because he had seen it from the air and training missions, and it was he knew it was warm. Mm-hmm. You're coming with me or you're not. Well, she came. So that's how he ended up here in Florida, and they divorced not too long thereafter. So literally the Daytona Beach choice, which kind of became his home mm-hmm. for most of his life, literally came from training missions when he was in the service. Yep. He had to fly a set amount of time. It wasn't a prescribed route. And they're just like sort of knocking off flight time. He's like, I got an yes. hour, so let's. Yes. Oh, I'm going to live here one day. <laughs> Guess okay. so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Guess so. Worked for the rest of his days. So he ends up down here, ends up finding himself divorced, mm-hmm. and he's got three kids with that wife. Yes, but they're living with her because it was that time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how quickly after he gets down here does he set up his own shop? Um, Almost immediately. Within a couple of years, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how quickly did he add the moniker Best Damn Garage in Town? From the beginning. So day one. From the beginning. It's one of his stories is um, buying the shop property on time um, and buying the neon sign that said Smokey's automotive service with the tagline of best damn garage in town and when he was a drinker sitting under the sign and enjoying the neon and what he is so building like the business license literally is like hello i'm smoky and mm-hmm. that's what goes in yeah. there was awesome. <clears throat> there was a time when my mom bought something from the local catholic church auction there's a school church just down the street from his house and she bought something at the garage sale auction and he gave her a check to go pay for it Mm -hmm. and it said Smokey's best damn garage in town and they would not take it yeah that's uh (laughs) that is profane language that is awesome that's also a great way to save money there you go (laughs) well he also he had that at Indianapolis Uh one year they had to tape over the word damn on the race car and on the uniforms wow hmm I don't remember the year, but they did but have right. to. But it was yeah. Midwest culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It was a family sport, Sean. There you go. It's a family sport. Yeah. It used to be. <laughs> Actually, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's like, wrong, 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 wrong. You said when he was a drinking man. Yes. Yeah. What was he, what did he drink? Pretty much anything, but I think the story he talks about um, giving up was whiskey. Mm-hmm. So he first starts this shop. Mm-hmm. Was it, was racing always the intent? Um, survival of build, re- servicing trucks and cars mm-hmm. was the initial intent. Yeah. But think about it, and this really strikes me. 
here we are in Daytona Beach after the service, after the war. You've got all these adrenaline junkies that have given their service and they have gotten used to this peak and valley of adrenaline. And they're all in the same place at the same time. Uh, Bill France, uh, Ray Fox, Smokey Eunuch, Fireball Roberts, Robert Fish. How did all of these people come to be right here at that particular moment in time? And so many of the racers had served and they were... They didn't know they were looking for an outlet, but they were. They were looking for something exciting because that nine to five and the wife and kids was not Mm -hmm. making do from what they had been used to. Right. Mm -hmm. So literally he moves to Daytona Beach because he thought it'd be a nice place to live. Yes. Nothing to do with racing. And then all of a sudden this racing scene develops around the town, Mm -hmm. beach racing and all that. Yeah. He gets hooked in with Marshall Teague is where it started. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I could do this. Yeah. 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 And, and they, you know, they had good success. So everybody likes to be the hero and it, it worked. But if he decided, oh, Cleveland, this seems like a nice place, there, there would be no Smokey Eunuch. So he and Marshall Teague start racing together. They start having success. At what point, I mean, that's got to be what, like late 50s? Mm-hmm. At what point does the first interaction, to your knowledge, where he and Bill France interact? Probably very from the very beginning. Right. I mean, <coughs> the France was the organizer, so yeah. probably from the very beginning. And do you think they clashed immediately, or did it something that probably took some time to build up? I'm prob- sure it probably built a little bit. Yeah. Stock cars kind of up and going. Daytona Beach is the scene. Mm-hmm. We've now start building the speedway. Um, at what point does Smokey sort of become the guy? I don't really know particularly when that was. I think all of these guys' stars mm-hmm. rose at the same time. Mm-hmm. But you have to remember that as their stars were rising and they were so intrinsic to racing being born, they were... They were garbage men. They were worse than the garbage men. This was not, racing was not a respected career. Right. Right. You were just a grease monkey out horsing around. Obviously around the 60s, he starts working on some pretty, you know, big programs for the time. And the Mm -hmm. race is becoming more and more of an actual sanctioned event that's like, you know, looked up to. Although not still, like as you put it, something that was honorable. Mm -hmm. When we talked to Deb Williams, she said her dad wouldn't let her go to the races because it was like no place for a little girl. You know, because it was so rough and tumble at the time. They didn't have bathrooms for for women, you know, like. And my grandfather was the local state's attorney. He has two daughters. He has four from a second marriage, but Mm -hmm. he has two daughters. One is my mother, who married Smokey. Right. And the other was engaged to Fireball Roberts as he died. Right. What was that? I mean, he was horrified. Yeah, yeah. Not just one, but both of them. (laughs) Both my kids are screwed. That's right. (laughs) Fireball Roberts was like the first hero superstar NASCAR driver and Smokey obviously had a pretty long-standing, you know, partnership with him Mm -hmm. as a driver mechanic. And I'm assuming that means he would come to dinner and became part of life. Sure. Yeah. Because drivers then would actually work in the shop and do things to try to help the team well, Glenn didn't really, and that was his name. Yeah, right. Uh, he didn't really get his hands dirty and work on the car too much. Um, and he also died the year I was born, so I don't oh. know him. Yeah, right. Um, but think about it. You've seen pictures from way back when. Uh, Glenn was always very well presented. Mm-hmm. Sharp, creased trousers and... You had to sell himself. He was, he did. I mean, he had, immediately before he was injured and died at... Charlotte, he had just signed a sponsorship agreement with Falstaff. He was going to finish that season. Mm-hmm. There were like three races left in that particular year, and he was going to be a spokesperson. Yeah, he was going to basically go work for a beer company right. and get out of racing from the driving mm-hmm. standpoint. Yeah. 
And at that point, he was no longer working with Smokey because yeah. Smokey had noticed what he called seat back. Instead of laying back in the seat and being comfortable, he was rigid and leaning forward. And Smokey didn't want to kill a driver and never lost a driver. So he said, you've, you've lost your edge. I don't want you any longer. I don't want to be the guy that gets you killed. When Fireball ended up you know, succumbing to his, his injuries, did anything change with Smokey? Like, was he more afraid of having a relationship with drivers? Obviously, he didn't work with them at the time, but they no, been together. No, um, but it made him more resolute in in safety. Uh-huh. That was pretty much the end of his NASCAR racing as well, because right. um, he wanted he used a, f- a fuel bladder that was taken from airplanes yeah. from the war, and France wouldn't allow that in NASCAR, and that was one of the last big blowups between the two of them. You remember what happened to Fireball? I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. And it wasn't too long after that that the fuel bladder was approved and became sa- standard safety equipment. Right. He but wanted the bladder strictly for safety reasons? He did. Yeah. One of his inventions that was patented well before he died was a crash barrier. Right. And Smokey's yeah. was actually made out of old tires and rebar and plywood in between it. But it was had hoist where it could be picked up and moved if a wall was damaged because he didn't want... He didn't want this. He said it was senseless. Right. You know, let's get people fixed. Mm-hmm. I mean, effectively, not too different from what softballs are today. He exactly. Sort of had like two wall systems mm-hmm. with a cushioning mm-hmm. in between. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Could, yeah. So effectively, that ends his NASCAR career, and he's had a ton of success at that point. I think we'll kind of pick some of the races apart specifically. What happens next for him? Obviously, well, he was racing Indy at the same time he was racing NASCAR, and he loved Indianapolis because it allowed his creative mind to run. He called it the little skinny rule book because NASCAR had all of these rules and regulations and a lot of things weren't a rule or regulation until Smokey and whoever ran it on Sunday and it became a rule on Monday. Um, But Indy said it has to be this long, it has to weigh this much and go at it. So at that time, Indy was just a much more open platform to go race compared to stock cars. And at that particular time, it was All-American. Part of his deal... He was very upset with CART and all of the divisions with all of the internationals and right. no longer the but great But in the American. 1960s, it was Foyt, it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Right. It was, it's a whole different, um, it's a whole different spirit. It's a whole different atmosphere. They were welcomed there. Um, the, they were just happy to be there and the, the sponsors and promoters and everybody involved with the Speedway was glad to have them there and came out and greeted them and what can we do for you and... The guards, there's so much talk about the yellow shirts now, but in <laughs> Smokey's day, he talks about he would be working late at night and falling asleep on the concrete floor, and the guard would toss a tire blanket over him so that he could sleep more soundly. And this wasn't treatment he got in, in stock cars? Oh, gosh, no. Oh, gosh, no. Was that just the nature of Indy at the time? They wanted this? They wanted the tinkerer? and they I wanted think so. the, the, To burn the rules? I think so. go faster? Yeah. If you look at the cars that they were allowing to show up, like a turbine, yeah, you like know, turbine. things like that, helicopter <laughs> engines and stuff. His sidecar, yeah, side with car. the yeah. driver the off in a pod, car? capsule car, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at this point in his life, he's pretty much done with NASCAR. He's basically butting heads with the guy running it, mm-hmm. and he's starting to really like Indy cars. He's got some success at the Speedway. So how long after he basically stops the NASCAR career because he's head to head with the guy running it? Did he continue to run? you know, indie cars and focus on that. About eight more years. Okay. But 
let me be clear, he wasn't, he didn't leave NASCAR specifically because he fought with France, because he fought with France for the duration of his game. He left it because he didn't feel like he could keep drivers safe. He knew that this was an issue. It had killed a friend of his, and it was just, in his view, stupid Mm -hmm. not to adopt it, and he wouldn't be a part of it. So literally he left over a fuel cell. Yes. Principle. Yeah. Yeah, because it sounds like, as you put it, they wouldn't allow the fuel cell. Mm-mm. Yeah. And probably it wasn't allowed just because it was smoky pitch in it. Right. Yeah, when we get through the biography, these are the sort of things I want to repoint back yeah. out. That I mean, how much of this was... Where is the where's the sense in arguing that there were plenty of them surplus there were plenty of them brand new it makes total sense why wouldn't They're you using them in airplanes yeah right. why wouldn't you do this except yeah. Smokey said we right. want to do this yeah. right and that uh, we'll get to that because this is that's exactly the point i want to get to but sort of want to go through the racing history and sure. then go back with some specific bullet points so during this time he's working with motor companies he's working with briefly with ford he's working with chevy he's working with pontiac and he's doing this in concert of you know, because racing wasn't all-consuming 24 hours then. So he would do his shop work, managing people, working on vehicles in the earlier days during the week, work on the cars at night, and then go to race on the weekends. But there was a lot of contract work for motor companies that helped fuel the racing. And he worked with all the major manufacturers. He worked with Chevrolet, he worked with Pontiac, he worked with Ford. Yeah. And was it primarily like a, an engine guy? Yes. Okay, so they would say, we've got a, we're developing a new race car, or sure. we want you to help us figure out how to... Well, not so much a race car, because everything came from the streetcar parts, and then had to be on the streetcar in order to be used in a race car. But it was about street performance and making things work. Yeah. So he, he had the kind of clout and pull that the automotive manufacturers would literally let him pretty much do whatever he wanted mm-hmm. to their parts. You know, like he would get brand new motors and start adjusting them the way he thought they should be done. Sure. And literally heads of companies would be like, yeah, that's okay. Cause that's smoky. And we'd get uh, junior engineers down here to work with him. People that would be here for sometimes two or three months yeah. outside of his house. He had a guest house and some of the guys would be here for long term working with him on some project. And then they'd go back home. Well, that had to be fun. Some 25-year-old junior engineer, and he's got to run them ragged. Herb Fischl started in Daytona with Smokey. Whoa. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> so roughly around the late 70s, he ends up you know, pretty much ending his IndyCar career mm-hmm. just out of, you know. Frustration with the rule changes and the international influx. Okay. And he wanted to see more American, you know. He did. It, okay. it was the all-American race, and it, there are pictures of him. Um, in a sweatshirt that somebody gave him that say, Indian mechanics don't need no green card. <laughs> oh, wow. Or, or real Indian mechanics don't have don't. green cards. He, <laughs> he would not like sports cars. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Let me get this straight. We have one American on the Ford factory team? Yeah. All right. That sounds great. Oh. <laughs> so, basically, there's more European influx. Eventually, cart forms yes. in the late 70s, which yes. is, and then it becomes very much an international race. But, He's also from a different generation where he's part of the greatest generation, right? Mm-hmm. So they all yeah. fought in a war. They yeah. went to Europe. Yeah. They won. Sure. Why would we <clears throat> welcome these people in to yeah. ruin our race? Yeah, you know? exactly. We fought them. Yeah. Yeah. So then what does he do? Continued doing what he had been doing. Lots of research and development for motor companies. Mm-hmm. Um, work on his own invention projects and managing the truck shop. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so the best damn garage in town is still running. Up and yeah, he at closed, that point. A, closed yeah. the truck shop in '87, but yeah. managed that all the way till then. Yeah. So, but he was he had active com- contracts with motor companies pretty much until he died. Right. He's very much a racer at heart. And I mean, the way you put it is basically he had a point in his career where he was frustrated, but also people weren't taking his phone calls anymore mm-hmm. for racing programs right. because the guy that he pissed off 20 sure. years earlier is now the guy in charge. Sure. Um, was there a bitterness at that stage? You know, in other words, like you might turn on the sport that you felt turned on you. No, what he said was that if what was going on at that point was racing, he didn't know what he did, what he had done, but they weren't the same thing that because they would in his day they would prepare their car to the best that man could and they went out equally matched and and raced to see what happened um and as more and more money came into it it changed the game i mean the chevelle the that was ultimately outlawed or banned because motor companies other motor companies were going to pull their advertising budget from nascar if they allowed it to run because it was showing them up. You have this, he did have backdoor funding from Chevy, but this ostensibly unfunded kind of individual from Daytona yeah. is, is showing up all of these other guys. I mean, By they totally blew the field. Yeah. Yeah. So the money talks. So even in the 1960s, because we complain about this a lot in yeah. 2019 <laughs> in all forms of motorsport. He means like our, our, our racing yeah, like not so yeah. just Sean and Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. No. So in the 2019 motorsport scene, every discipline has fans or competitors that complain about how the rules are being adjusted to try and keep so and so happy. Right. Sure. NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, drag racing. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, they're doing this because they want to keep so and so. Yeah, the Ford's yeah. this, the Chevy's that, yeah, the right. Toyota. Yeah. Absolutely. But in 1960s, 1970s, this is still the same politics that it was then that it sure. is today it's and we oftentimes look at this as a golden era where this stuff didn't exist but back it in my absolutely day. did no yeah. it did well, no. the money is just a lot different but yes it did okay well one thing we found quite interesting when reading the book mm-hmm. is uh there's a story about uh receiving pleasures pleasures from a friend of his his mom at a very young age yeah. you're the editor you're the editor and his daughter didn't edit anything. Um, Sorry. Well, okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> let's, let's fix that you're for You're the you. proofer. So yes. you have to read this before anybody in the world ever sees it. Yes. How does a daughter react to that story? I mean, it, it's probably true. Yeah. I, it's just, it's smoky. It was part and, par- <laughs> part and parcel of the package. Right. Um, he didn't change <laughs> until he was in his mid-70s. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's just who he was so when you come across a story whether it's about talking about whores in the vatican or <laughs> or pleasures all through kinds of things fence, through a very young age yes. right at any point are you like God, dad or are you like yeah now all right now that's who he is that's pretty much the yeah. best part yeah. or worst part was <laughs> um i mean i that's just who he was and okay um we're the book is done the mm-hmm. manuscript is done mm-hmm. it's time to get it working towards printing. So one of the first things we have to do is get a media liability policy because... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so What's we, the concern there? We are afraid that, first of all, the Francis are going to find out that it's coming and put yeah. an injunction against us. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the reason it was Carbon Press, so that it wasn't Unic anything. Carbon mm-hmm. was the name of his dog. In other um, words, 
a separate company that if you sued it was, wasn't anything it was there encapsulated you could really and from. it wasn't easy to find yeah they, we have to hire a media attorney to okay. review the manuscript yeah. yeah and he says well to save me some money why don't you highlight the things that are going to be a problem oh god Okay. Pages one, three, so, like <laughs> yeah. so we go through and highlight things, and ultimately, there was there was a because of the noise in the service and with the race cars, his hearing was really bad, and those three little tiny bones in the middle of your ear, they take those out and they put in an implant, mm-hmm. and it gives you super keen hearing. He did one ear, and then he was going to go do the other ear, and he couldn't stand being around us kids because he had too much hearing with one ear. So, but it has to be, you have to go see the ear doctor every so often to get it cleaned out because it doesn't do it on its own. Okay. Yeah, sure. So he is getting ready to go to Talladega for the Hall of Fame and the guy cleans his ear and messes up and busts his eardrum, physically busts the eardrum. Yeah. So then he gets on the airplane and flies because he has an obligation. Yeah. So because he traveled and he saw a local doctor there. He couldn't sue the guy. But he said in his book, in the manuscript, mm-hmm. that he was a quack, that he damaged the ear, and mm-hmm. that this oh, is the problem. Okay. That was the That's only thing libel, yeah. we had to take out. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Everything else is in there. All of the stuff about Bill Clinton. All of the stuff <laughs> about the Francis. Well, but in fairness, that's all editorial opinion. Right. Well, so that's not libel okay. in the same way that saying this guy that worked for me is a quack. Right. Yeah. So I have to, we have to highlight the things that are issues. And then I get to spend the morning on the telephone with the female junior legal attorney or junior attorney oh to highlight these things. <laughs> I've, I've lived this. Be, I'm kind yeah. of used to this. Yeah. And I can hear her turning purple on the other end right. of the telephone right. oh, yeah. as yeah, we're yeah, going yeah. through this. Right. So, yeah. I, I was just kind of used to it. It was smoky. But, yeah, I am aware that it's a little much. Right. And, and also didn't think it would be worth saying like maybe this part just doesn't need to be in the story at all because it was his deal that's it it was his deal there was an awful rumor the racers edition the big books that um as he wanted it printed he died in may the books were actually out in july we had to reprint about three months later and there was a rumor that went through that said we had cleaned it up and I'm like, no, we didn't clean anything up. Right. It's 500 this is pages. The, that's yeah. pretty much it. 1,100. 1,100. This yeah, is yeah. the way he wanted it, and that's the way we did it. Yeah. So. Did you at any point bring up like that, maybe we don't need this, or it's just simply too I long? I wouldn't dare. Yeah, it's just well, not worth no. it. Yeah. That's the reason it was broken. What I sent you was what we call the pocket edition. The book okay. was originally published exactly as he wanted it. The pocket it. edition. The thing is like this. It's <laughs> yeah. seven and a half by nine, weighs four pounds, but it's the baby. Mine's just an iPad. <laughs> the book was, it's 11 by 11, and it weighs 11 pounds. It had to be broken into three separate yeah. volumes. And the reason it was laid out in that format was he wanted extra letting space between the lines so older eyes could see it well. And he wanted the pictures laid in the story and large so that you got the pictures with the story. Yeah. So it's what he said, do. I'm really good at doing what he said. Would he clean it up for anyone? Was there anyone that he would be like, okay. I yes. If he spoke to an audience that was mixed audience or if he spoke to kids, he was absolutely perfectly on level and clean and just there. He, my son, who is now 21, my bird store was on the same property as Smokey's shop. Okay. He built it that way on purpose so we could be close. And it had an external gate around both businesses, and so it was contained. And my 
two and a half year old would toddle up and spend the day with grandpa. Yeah. And um, they had a great time. And if he were in a mixed audience, he was clean and respectful. But um, otherwise, no. <laughs> <laughs> Got that impression. Yeah. So kind of in the biography of things, uh, he basically eventually succumbs to cancer. Mm-hmm. And he was, he called, how did he put it? He got everything but pregnant? Yes. <laughs> it, it started as myelodysplastic anemia, which is MDS, which is very heavily, strongly linked to chemical exposure. Toluene. I mean, stuff that people stuff that use. Working as a mechanic. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. were especially mixing your own fuels in Indy. It was what they bathed in pretty much. Yeah. And so he was sick for 18 months, I guess. And for the first year, it was just MDS, and it could be treated by... Um, some mild chemotherapy and blood transfusions. But then, unfortunately for him, it morphed into um, AMO, AML, which is a leukemia, okay. which couldn't be treated. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So when it first started, it wasn't necessarily terminal until it... Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. I'm not sure I can tell you this, but I'll try. He, um, he was very keenly aware he was dying, and the... His optometrist tells me a story of the last time he saw Smokey, which was a few weeks before he died. He'd gone in to have eyeglasses adjusted. And he said he walked in, and he had a really hard time walking, and we did our business and took the money, and he left. And then I saw him walk back in, and he came in to tell me goodbye and thank you for your effort. So he was, he was, very, um, he was very appreciative. So he, I, he wasn't greedy for attention or seeking attention but he was so conscious there's a chapter in the book that is written dedicating dedicated to the fan because he felt specifically nascar but all racing fans were overlooked or taken for granted they had these tremendous hotel prices and ticket prices and miserable conditions inside the racetrack and crazy concession prices and his expression was load the mag load the wagon boys the mule is blind that the sanctioning bodies were just taking the money and taking the fans for granted producing this product but if they didn't have these guys and it's kind of funny the perspective where we are right now what do you mean (laughs) maybe they took maybe racing at large took the fans for granted for too long but he was so he knew that without the fans he wouldn't be anybody, and right. he wouldn't have been able to accomplish the things he did, and he was keenly aware of that. So he had the, in the ending months of his life, he had the actual understanding internally that this is coming to an end. This is it. And that's why he was, mm-hmm. that's why he would walk back in and thank the doctor. Yes. What were those sort of final days like in terms of, for him, was he doing everything he could to make any amends, or were there any sort of unexpected apologies, anything like that? No. No. <laughs> I remember, remember, I no, said. No, still smoky. <laughs> I, I said he was an awesome provider and uh, just not real, real touchy-feely. He, yeah. was, he was my dad, and I was very much daddy's little girl. Yeah. Um, in the last five days, he really wasn't all there. Yeah. And at the same time, you're desperately hoping for the end for peace for him i remember my hardest day was four or five days before he died when i realized there wasn't gonna be one of those yeah. dramatic speeches because he was gone you know he's yeah. still here and he's breathing but there's not going to be any real revelation yeah. he was um they were 
they weren't shown love as kids right. and so they didn't have it to give we're gonna be a good provider we're gonna take care of you but the touchy-feely stuff in there a guy like smoke he's probably got some pretty detailed instructions for his funeral he did <laughs> i just knew that was <laughs> yeah, coming he did. he's like i need so it to be this, this yeah. yeah what was the uh well he had a very in- detailed estate plan this is donated this is sold do this um the only really he wanted to uh, be cremated. He didn't want to be put in the ground. But he was a big um, Marty Robbins fan, and he wanted the Wabash Cannonball played. as the, He wanted that played as he walked out on Indy, and that never happened, but he wanted that played at his service, and we did that. Did anybody like that we would know show up? Or was it a private service? Or? It was not a private service. Um, there weren't a whole lot of dignitaries if you will or or famous people that came but the flowers and remembrances were just from everybody yeah the france family said anything no no nascar anything maybe i missed the card no yeah what was the greatest comment you heard from anybody after the fact like i don't know if that's people like a compliment you know like grieving so in other words you know his time has passed in the last you know, 20 years, you, you run into somebody and they, they pay a compliment that you weren't expecting to hear. Has there been any moment like that? The coolest thing I hear, and you've got to remember, this is 19 years later, so yeah, it's, right. there's I some understand. distance. Um, I hear all the time from people who needed something and he helped them. It just, nobody, if you will. And people tell me, you know, I needed help and he gave me this part or he lent me this engine and I won. Um, he gave me these secrets and they helped me win races. The guy, the sanctioning body decided I was cheating, but I wasn't. It was all right. legal. And these aren't like necessarily the big wigs of stock cars or any cars. These are like club racers yes. that he just helped anybody. Yeah. So legend versus truth is a big topic of conversation with us. Okay. Are there any stories that you've heard that you're like, no way. Like, I know that's not true. Like, oh, he gave me a big hug and he was. Oh, I, <laughs> I probably hear. I don't know how often I hear all the time. Oh, we were really close. Right. We were really close. Yeah. Well, I spent the last seven years on the same property in and out of his space all day, every day. And I never saw you. And you know what? I cleaned up the Rolodexes and your number ain't in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause he so, and I were like joined at the hip. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we used to hang out all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I hear that all the time. Yeah. Random side note. When we did our cold wiki video a year yeah, ago, we a- discovered that yeah. like firsthand that there's a lot of people that were best friends with Alan after the fact. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. would like the first guy we interviewed. Blatantly false information. Yeah. yeah. When, as we got to know other people, we realized, Oh, like, that first guy was telling lies. Oh, that must yeah. have been fun to figure out. Oh, God. Well, it was, it was actually funny ex- for us. Yeah, yeah, we're like, oh. So then we're like, should yeah. we just burn this guy? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, he was like, oh, Alan didn't drink. He, he would never drink. And then we have Polaroids of him, like, with, a, like, beer mugs on his helmet. You know what yeah. I mean? He's like, oh, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of where that, that's literally where that question was oh, going. Oh, it happens all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. He was, he was, I was always there. And I hear a lot, um, my ex worked for him. Okay. And I was always in the shop. Yeah. There's sort of like some key bullet points in his career of just legends of Smokey Eunuch. And we're going to ask you to confirm some of these or deny. Yeah. Okay. Um, basketball in the fuel tank. I know it's sad. I didn't see it, but I know it's sad. Okay. So so if you were going to explain to to 
couple of children. Um, what what a basketball in the fuel tank could do. What what was the? Oh, the it displaces it displaces the fuel and allows you to allows NASCAR or the sanctioning body to think that it only holds five gallons when in fact once the basketball has been deflated it can hold 15 right which is an advantage but you don't know if it actually happened i don't but i know that it's sad yeah what about the gas tank being removed from the chevelle him being so pissed that he's got to change all these things to make the race that he drives off without the gas tank i'm told that's true yeah i'm told that's true and the story is that he said he had enough fuel in the fuel lines to make it to Jacksonville and back. <laughs> <laughs> because at the time, it didn't say yeah. how long the fuel line could be. And the fuel line yeah. snaked around the uh, uh, roll cage. Yeah, it's basically the only thing the rule book dictated was sort of the thickness of the tubing. Right. right. Nothing in the length. It was sort of assumed that no one would... Right. Come up with something that stretched yeah. in and out of itself at the and, point you had five extra gallons. And Smokey's position was, if it didn't say you cannot do this, then it was legal to do that. And a lot of things became rules on Monday because he exploited the gray area on Saturday or Sunday because it didn't say you couldn't do that. When we decided to come out here, one of the big words you really didn't want to hear was the word cheater. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because... Smokey was very, very specific that he never cheated. Right. He simply looked for rules that weren't written mm-hmm. and and made those. Looked for the what, gray area yeah. and used them, used his creative powers mm-hmm. to yeah. make it happen. So if, if they never prescribed the length of a fuel line, <clears throat> right. therefore, how are you cheating that, that you've got one that's extremely sure. long? Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Probably the most famous of all of Smokey's inventions or, or things he did to screw with the garage mm-hmm. uh was the the 67 chevelle mm-hmm. um so what's what's the backstory on that car in terms of where where was it headed it was headed to dominate at daytona and it was well on its way so Smokey wasn't a full season contender in what would now be the cup series it was just sort of a, he had a one-off car um he'd been very competitive in a couple races the previous year and so he shows up at the 1968 daytona 500 with a 67 Chevelle. And there's no Chevrolets entered from the factory. Right. So it's like Ford and, and Pontiac GM, essentially, but no Chevy entry. Right. So a privateer with a Chevy, if they're going fast, the big, big manufacturers aren't going to be happy about that. It was a problem. And so they went to Mr. France and said, if you let him run, then we're going to pull our ad money. And Smokey had already been to France and said, this is what I'm going to bring. Are you going to let me run? And he said, yes, I'll let you run. And so they made their threat. And Smokey, the famous story of the list given from Mr. Friel of all the things that were wrong with the car and had to be corrected to qualify. And the first one was fixed frame. I mean, it was impossibilities. And so he left with the fuel tank on the ground and said that he could have driven to Jacksonville and back on the fuel that was in the lines. And... Uh, He did go to France the next week and say, what happens? And France said, look, this is what they were going to do. And he said, but you told me I could run. And he said, Smokey, it's business. I want to know about the car itself. If you don't know these things. Yeah, I don't. Just tell me. Okay. Because there was like how he mounted it on the frame rail and all that. Yeah, everything. I mean, it was all very slick aerodynamically. The the door frames, door rails were brought in. Mm -hmm. The the oil the pan on the bottom was all flattened out everything underneath instead of being round or oblong is elliptical because he was 
his aerodynamic advantage came from flying in the war. Mm-hmm. And the uh, basis of the capsule car also came from that same time. He was being pursued by a little German plane that had the pilot outside of the fuselage. Right. And he had a hard time getting away and surviving because the plane was so nimble and quick. And he kept that in mind years later for the capsule car. But he was aware of making things smooth and making them pointed and rounded to take advantage of the air. And he was very likely the first guy to bring that to NASCAR. It's pretty heavily credited to Junior Johnson, but Smokey was there at the same time period. And at least there's more remaining history that's very clear. Right. NASCAR today, when a car goes through kind of pre-race inspection, there's a thousand points with lasers that they mm-hmm. measure off the car to make sure it's a very specific body shape, sure. right height, you name it. Um, there were templates in 1968, but it just was one single template from the top down, I believe. Yeah, let me tell you about the template, and you can't okay. use this. Oh. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. It almost seems like he had a vengeance. <laughs> That's a level Because of... like, he's going to the point of being five miles an hour faster than the second place car. It was a privateer entry, even if he was getting funding from behind the scenes. That's like that's going above him. You're not winning by an inch at that point. You're going to win by laps. But he didn't have any competition until they stood on that line that day. So he didn't know how much faster he was. He just gave it his all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was his thing. You do the best you can, and you get out there and stand man to man and see who did better. Yeah. And so... You know, it could have been 20 miles an hour faster, but he had no idea. He right. just did the best he could to get there. So NASCAR officials gave him like a laundry list of things to to fix in time if you want to get out in the into the race? He was given a list of, I believe it was 12 items, and the first on the list was to have a stock frame. And it was just an impossibility. Yeah. 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 And it's felt strongly that this was because of pressure from other manufacturers. Yes. Ad money talks. Rumor has it that the way that that 68 race went down that big bill did apologize to Smokey and did try to make it right and allegedly Smokey threw a hammer at him when he showed up to apologize i wouldn't doubt that at all <laughs> wouldn't doubt that at all after the hammer throwing incident didn't work out the next legend goes that he sent him a check since and, he wasn't able to make any money and, and the check was returned with special editions uh clarify please he took the check to the bathroom with him <laughs> Made a deposit. <laughs> I could not. <laughs> so, thanks, Continental. Yeah. <laughs> Is that true? Is that story true? The the bathroom. From what I'm told. Yeah. Yeah. So he and Big Bill didn't get along. No. So there was a NASCAR rivalry. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like he did have respect for Bill France in terms of what he did to grow the sport. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he says it really clearly in his autobiography that the sport was lawless. You would line up to start the race. And when the race was over, there was no purse because the promoter had taken the money and left. And it needed governing, and Bill was the right person at the right time to make it happen. And he did a wonderful job about that, and Smokey acknowledged that before he died. He just didn't like the way 
some people got stepped on along the way. If somebody's sort of an anti-authoritarian type, it's very common that they are going to fight anybody in charge no matter what. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was the case with Smokey? Like if it wasn't Big Bill and some guy that we've never heard of, let's say it was Mark Miles today, mm-hmm. would he probably just have been as adversarial? No, I don't think so. There were there were times when he had stupid battles with the city on a building permit. I mean, he had built an extension on his shop and it took nine months to get a CO on a silly metal building. He worked with the flow. It was, it was different. It wasn't like that everywhere in his life. So in line with the rivalry he had with Bill France and the France family, now we find, you know, years after his passing, he's absolutely, without a doubt, should be in the Hall of Fame for NASCAR. And everyone thinks that because of the rivalry, it'll never be a possibility, even though it's mm-hmm. voted on by people that don't necessarily work for NASCAR. Ah, but who's on the nomination committee? But, I mean, let's objectively, Smokey, it was an inaugural member of the International Motorsports Hall of Fame. Yeah. He's in the SEMA Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. He was an IndyCar mechanic of the year. He has accolades, just, I think there's 45 different halls of fame that he's been inducted in. Um it's fairly obvious, but if you tell me that one of my children is too stupid to pour piss out of a boot if the instructions were written on the heel, I'm going to, that's going to have lasting problems. Right. Please tell me that's a real quote. It absolutely is. Is that about uh, Brian France? No, that's Bill Jr. Bill Jr. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember reading it. <laughs> um. My personal take on it, and I'm nobody, is that it would almost behoove them to have him put in to be the bigger person on their side, you know, to be like, hey, look, we understand these guys didn't get along, but what he did for the sport was incredible. So just because we don't like you doesn't mean you're not worthy of a place here. That would actually give them the upper hand on the whole thing. We were big enough to, even though it doesn't really matter. But from what we understand, because we... participated in the hall of fame ceremonies for Alan Kowicki. We went and watched and all that. And we got to see kind of how it works behind the scenes. It's voted amongst people from the media as well as drivers and and team owners and things like that. And from what we were told from Tom Jensen, it it comes up every now and then that his name is mentioned, you know, and anybody can be mentioned and it's not something where you get in trouble. It's just actually putting it down and getting enough people to vote for it, to put it into the, the final group. So, Another thing we heard was that he wouldn't want to be in the Hall of Fame because it would give money. It would bring money right. to NASCAR. Do you find that true? No, I think that he would very much appreciate being honored by his peers. He was very confident in his contributions to the sport mm-hmm. and was also very, very proud and stoic. He would not ask for it. If it's bestowed upon him, he'd be very gracious and very appreciative because arguably everyone that's been honored enshrined in that hall deserves it Mm -hmm. and would be peers so i think that he would respect the hall as he did the others that he's was put in but he wouldn't ask for it and i think personally that the longer it goes on the sillier it looks so if two wild wacky kids with the podcast decided (laughs) to start telling everybody we know that they should be pressuring the fan vote to mm-hmm. get Smokey Eunuch in, he wouldn't mind that if he was around. No, he would think that was cool. Yeah. And first of all, I think he would really enjoy what y'all have done. Yeah. I think that he would love the stories. Um, 
Somebody would have to operate the machine for him, but he'd love the stories. Um, I'm fired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We we wanted him to, um, when we were working on the book, trying to think of the, he didn't look good. Yeah. And so he didn't want pictures and he didn't really want video. So we wanted tell stories so mm-hmm. we gave him a little audio recorder and the only thing he recorded on it was <laughs> how do you work this crazy contraption <laughs> so can we have that <laughs> um probably that's that's definitely yeah that, it's amazing it's gonna be on it's it's on one yeah. of those little tiny tapes Okay, so are there any legends of Smokey that we don't know? Like the great, the great thing he got away with that never really got as much publicity as like the Chevelle or the fuel cell story, for example. Um, no, I don't. Or not that I can think of. He was a maintained a pilot's license until he died. He was a helicopter pilot. Um, he <clears throat> because he did so much business with the motor companies in in South Florida. That was the reason he got the helicopter. And he would fly himself. And when he decided in 89 to get rid of the helicopter because of insurance cost, 89, kind of wealthy white guy in central Florida, the DEA crawled it. <laughs> uh, we might know a couple people. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. all of that was going on here yeah. at the same time yeah. in Daytona. And, and he has this um, massive shop. Yeah. And he right. was, he, you know, put ads nationally in these clean cut guys would come and crawl it for inspection. Um, (laughs) So he maintained his pilot's license all the way through. Um, uh, It's not legal to land a helicopter on the peninsula any longer. Okay. And that was credit to Smokey. Um, (laughs) See the rule book. (laughs) he, uh, He would, for a brief time, would fly from his shop pretty much across the bridge it's just a little bit of an angle to the house yeah. land it in the backyard <laughs> to eat dinner that's home yeah <laughs> <laughs> and the neighbors didn't like the, prop the helicopter coming into their backyard <laughs> yeah so what's their problem so they one weekend he was away racing in small city they made it a rule you can't land here any longer <laughs> so he hovered over the yard and the helicopter wash tore up their backyard. Um, <laughs> so he took it on the chair. So he's like, okay, cool. I'm not going to land, but I'm going to make your life hell. Is yeah, there a hover? Yeah. So he's like yeah. trying to figure out how to like climb down. Now, I heard it from a reliable source about five minutes ago that he didn't harass people if he didn't need to. <laughs> they asked for it. <laughs> Acorn tree. Um. <laughs> I was. We were told the way he learned how to fly the helicopter was literally he just fired the thing up behind the shop and would just like hover for a second and land it and then try to figure it out from there. Like he didn't go take lessons necessarily with his non-jet helicopter. Yes. Okay. But because pretty much anybody that's got the cash can buy one of those. Uh-huh. But for the jet, it was a Bell Jet Ranger, oh, and wow. you can't do that unless you go to Bell and you take their their course, uh-huh. which includes. It, I think the first time it's a week or it was at the time but they take you up with an instructor and turn it off and you have to restart it for survival right so yeah (laughs) 
Um, the Bell Jet Rangers, that's a real helicopter. Yeah. yeah it was so a real like helicopter. Your, na- your neighbors had a valid yeah. <laughs> reason to be mad. And he painted it black and gold. It was black and gold stripes. Oh, it was that's pretty. badass. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's my guy. Yeah. We have a uh, friend. We'll call him Robert Unser. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Robert. Who uh, would not get in a helicopter with Smokey because oh, really? he thought he was a terrifying pilot. Now, having said that, <laughs> if you've never heard if I will never get in an airplane with Bobby Unser with some of the shit that came out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah. See episode two. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have another. There's another episode that's awesome. That's, trust me, you don't want to get in a plane with He's that getting it back. crazy old man. Um, would you get in a plane with, with Smokey? We, we did. Um, we took Sunday helicopter rides. Before we weren't allowed to land on the peninsula, <laughs> and my mother was scared to death of heights, and the front of the jet bell is glass or plexiglass, and so he would go up and then tilt over the river, so she just saw water in front of her and freak out, and then we Lovely. would fly up and down the river. Um, there, uh, the intracoastal has islands yeah. as you go up away and uh, land on an island and find crabs and that kind of stuff. And then he'd done his fatherly duty for another week or two and take it back. <laughs> Had a good excuse to fly his helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, because exactly, they have to be used. <laughs> yeah, two birds, two birds. <laughs> Get in, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> We'd go out over the ocean, and you would see surfers between the helicopter and the shore. Yeah. And they're, like, waving at the helicopter, and you're like, shark, shark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we have we have a couple of sources. Our buddy Robert um, Allison and uh, Robert Unser, Uncle Robert, Uncle Robert, um, <laughs> both had incredible praise for Smokey's ability to make a car that that had incredible horsepower, awesome in a straight line, and la- lousy handling. Yes, yes. apparently. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you talked to Mario about that, but he said the same thing: crazy power, but lousy handling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Allison was of the opinion that if if Smokey would have listened to him, they could have had a car with great power, and then with with uh, Bobby's advice, could have made the car actually turn. But Smokey wasn't necessarily one who cared for what his drivers had to say. No, not at all. Um, Johnny Rutherford apparently they had discourse but, or dialogue, but. Um, Mario is pretty well quoted as saying he came to Daytona for a seat fitting and Smokey basically said, I'll see you on race day. He had no, there was no, no point counterpoint with them at all. (laughs) It sounds like he didn't really talk about work very much, but did he ever talk about drivers around you guys, good or bad? He didn't know. He didn't talk about them. There were, you know, people we knew, um, but no, he didn't. Yeah. Did he ever have any smoky like the the dude, not the okay. racer or whatever? Like, did he ever do anything for fun outside of scaring the hell out of people in a helicopter? No, he did nothing. There's he no... worked, and he was a homebody. Yeah. Um, he didn't like going out to trade shows. He was good during the day at a show, talking to people. He was good in meetings, but specifically ARP, he didn't like going out with them at night because... They're foodies. They want to sit and eat and talk all night long. I just want my <laughs> dinner brought to me in my hotel room. Um, God damn, that's my guy. I was just saying, <laughs> love room service. Yeah. Like, yeah. he understood the job of being around people, but he didn't, if he didn't have to socialize, he didn't want to. No. Oh, God, I understand. And I find, I'm good with going out for the meal, but after you've been nice to people all day long, and maybe you didn't want to be nice to them, but mm-hmm. it's your job, so you have to be nice to them. 
I just don't want to do it anymore. Sure. I, I'm tired. Yeah. All I did was stand and talk, but I'm tired. And, and that was happening later in life for him too, right? He, yeah, he yeah. continued working shows and working engagements with people right mm-hmm. up until the end. Yeah. So, I mean, at that point, you've been doing this for so long. You're like, ah. One more steak. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, we didn't have any fun, like no hobbies outside of cars? Like, he didn't like the garden or something that we wouldn't no. know? What was his favorite, like... My dad was a big time meat and potatoes guy. Meat and potatoes. Yeah. Same. Meat and potatoes. Um, I had to have a meat, a starch, a vegetable, a salad every night, and a fresh dessert at least every three days. Would he uh, smoke his pipe in the house? Yes. Yeah? Yes. And <laughs> he would sit on the john in the bathroom in the morning and eat oatmeal every day for breakfast with black tea. And... He would sit and read the newspapers, and he was a crazy reader. Wall Street Journal, um, local paper, Orlando paper, every morning. And when he needed more coffee, he would take his pipe and bang it on the ashtray. And it would go ding, 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 ding. And you could hear it right. halfway across the house, and that meant you needed to bring him more Service. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Prom for Trish Eunuch. Trish Unit got sent to a private school that didn't allow dancing. Oh, it was okay. Awesome thing for a restrictive father to do. Oh, that was his call. Yeah. <sighs> well, that was, uh, no, my mom put us there. But then after she died, it was really easy for him to leave the kids <laughs> at a private Christian school. It's like, okay. oh, I got Indy yeah. coming up. I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. So you go here. Yeah. Yeah. First boy he met. Um, he didn't like him. He had long hair. And that was it. That was, yeah. Hippie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine what he would think of Braden. I mean, he adored Braden when he was little, but Braden's now got long hair that's four different colors and <laughs> one leg tattooed, and it's like... It surprises me that with the Daytona 24-hour being such a big race that I don't have any smoky eunuch history at all of him doing the 24 hours of Daytona or Sebring, which mm-hmm. isn't that far away. Um, he did some testing stuff at Sebring um, when there was so much run- money running through imsa and he was doing work he was he didn't like that yeah and he was paid in cash for a couple of deals and it just made him very uncomfortable so he didn't want to play that paid. oh when wait, it, was wait, he paid for ca- on. okay hold yeah on. yeah that we he was paid that. cash for a couple of IMSA deals I, people assume, that paid cash. I assume it was engines yeah okay but but from teams it would have had a lot of cash I don't really know okay. how it came to happen. I know none of those folks came to the house. Okay. <laughs> they, were, they were local in Fort Lauderdale? Presumably. Okay. Miami area? Yeah. Presumably. Yeah. yeah. Miami, for sure. One of the things he did, which I thought was really unique, is he put a wing on top of an of a Indy car. He was the first guy to run a wing at Indy. But it's massive. Like it You is. see this wing, and you're like, okay. like went all in there. Got to start somewhere. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and uh, at the time, nobody was doing that. And right. he basically put it like right on the roof, almost like a sprint car is now. Mm-hmm. And his quote was that it was just as fast through the corners as it was on the straights, and that right. was the problem. Right. And then I'm surprised that he didn't, like, being the guy he is, didn't come back, like, days later with a smaller version or something. Yeah. Just I don't know. There's so much, there's so many things, hundreds and thousands of things that I wish I could ask him. Yeah. And there were, he didn't, it was all in his head. Mm-hmm. There were very little records, nothing written down. It was all what he worked on and tried. But that was how. That's his That, yeah. that was Except his for the three weeks usually after Indy that he would go to Ecuador. Yeah. Um, he worked, I mean, he literally went from the, from work to the hospital 
the last time. He was in the hospital for about 10 days and died, but he was at work. Wow. Wow. So like his last home time, so to speak, was mm -hmm. shop. At the shop. To, yeah. Quite literally left yeah. from the shop. Think he wanted it any other way? No. Yeah. No. That's where he was happy. That yeah. was his comfortable place to be. Why Ecuador? It came from, the guy's name was Kenny Rich. He was a coincidentally rich oil guy from Texas who was a sponsor on the Indy cars. Yeah, it's and, on the one in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somehow, I don't know, Kenny had a buddy whose name was Leonard, and Leonard married an Ecuadorian woman. And I don't know if Leonard met her here or met her there, but they started going to Ecuador, mm -hmm. and Smokey liked the complete cutoff. It let his mind refresh. And you have nine. Okay, so the rumor is, is that he has eight patents. Mm -hmm. And what are they? In, in uh, one is the crash barrier. Mm -hmm. One is the diesel oil refinery system from Ecuador. One is a particular kind of paper-based oil filter. Um, what else are they? I can't think of anything else. He created the extended tip spark plug. Right. But he lost out. That patent went to the champion or parent company for Champion Spark Plug. Okay. He was literally one night from getting a mill on every spark plug sold from Champion. But the guy died. And his, I mean, literally, the poor man had a heart attack oh. and died. <laughs> and the subordinate wouldn't honor the deal. Um, variable ratio power steering in your car. Uh -huh. Um he had patents in not just motorsport sure. related. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just sort of whatever mechanical thing he thought of. Right. All of a sudden, it was a patent. Right. And and let's bring it back to safety. He had patented the soft wall well before he died and well before Dale Earnhardt was killed. And he actually wrote, before any of those things happened, that until some big name is killed, NASCAR is not going to do anything. And oddly enough, that happened. So Smokey was pronounced about safety all through his time, especially in stock cars. Yes. Um, you know, Fireball Roberts obviously had a horrendous crash mm -hmm. that eventually he succumbed to. And uh, it seemed like Smokey, between some of his thoughts on safety within the cars, his idea of a soft wall, et cetera, et cetera, uh, fuel cells, these are things he put out there and they seem to be rejected hands down uh, by the powers that be. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that was because it was coming from him? In other words, the messenger was more important than the message? I think it was a combination. I don't think it was mandatory at the time. It wasn't, there wasn't enough outcry about it and people were arguably expendable. There was another one and another one and another one until there's a big name. If somebody that was less vocal all the time, a, a Junior Johnson, a Dale Inman, um, do you think they might have listened differently? Maybe a little more, but I really think that until they were pressed to have to deal with it, they chose not to. And ultimately, this was probably the biggest thing that, that led him to leaving. Well, that's why, definitely why I left NASCAR, because of the fuel cell, sure. So we sat down with Bobby Allison, and he felt that there were kind of two big things that Smokey kind of hurt himself with. Mm -hmm. uh, one was that... If, let's say he had 13 key areas that exploited the gray on any given uh, car, if he'd done half of them, mm -hmm. the car would have been more competitive than anybody else, but probably wouldn't have been as obvious uh, an overdog. Possibly, but Smokey's take on that was, 
give them a few that if they find those, it's not going to matter because those aren't the ones that are really making the performance difference. So some things he did, literally he would drill holes places just to watch people look at him and copy it because they didn't know what he was doing. But if he was doing it, let's try. Um, but with regards to trying things, some things are just minor and they're not going to make that much difference even combined. But maybe they'll get those and miss this. So I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. What did he drive on the street? <laughs> um, a Ford Fiesta. Oh, balling. Old Ford Fiesta. <laughs> Not when they brought him back to the States, but old Ford Fiesta. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it was like a tin can. <laughs> when he closed the door, it dinged. Right. His last car was a Honda Accord. Awesome. Got That's it. my guy. It, he just felt. I knew it. <laughs> he felt you should have reliable ground transportation. He believed that what was being sold to the public was way more than most people could handle and needed. Did he spend money on anything extravagant? Like, was he like, did he buy watches or no. did, like, was no. his pipe even expensive? Did he make it himself? Like, no, just a standard issue Meerschaum pipe. Um, no, not really. Yeah. He was a simple guy. He had his belt buckle was solid gold but it was because he had mined those nuggets in ecuador um his hats were silly his hats um his hats came from stetson and if you imagine hoss cartwright and that great big 10 gallon hat well that's how they started they started and then a company called shooty brothers which is also in what what was their name shooty s-h-u-d-d-e Um, they have a special block and they take this giant hat and squish it down into Smokey's block and steam it like for six weeks until it stays there. You want to play with that one? Yeah. This one's like a mini tiger. Yeah. This one's ready. Ryan gets gets an animal. I get an animal. That's the deal. Okay. He wants to sit on the table. He doesn't like to be held, but he'll love you if you pet him. There you go. Um, so the hats were an extravagance, but how did that look come about? I don't know how it came to be squashed. I know that the, he had dress uniforms, dress hats and work uniforms, work hats, the dress uniforms. He wanted to represent the companies that he worked for. Well, so they were, he wore white, um, cotton only Mm -hmm. uniform pants and shirts, but they were, 1960s era which were really thick and heavy and they had to be starched from the cleaners which they don't do that anymore (laughs) um so that they were crisp right and you would literally have to slide your hand through the pant legs to open them up for him really which he didn't do himself you had to do that for him Um, he's busy and he said that the reason he liked the starch was because then if he was too tired at the end of the day the pants could hold him up Dad jokes so, with Smokey Eunuch. <laughs> but after you wear those to work, they don't clean so uh-huh. well. Okay. So he had sets that went to shows and to appearances and sets that he worked in. The hats, it's a, it was a white beaver belly is what they called it. Okay. And a print from the oil in your hands. Doesn't matter how clean your hands are, the oil will print them. Okay. And we had all kinds of literally eyeshadows, silvers to try and touch them up to make them last longer because the base hat back then was three or $400. And then oh, it yeah. had this blocking technique to right. it. So after they got two printed, then they became work hats. Right. And a work hat might last 10 years. Yeah, there's sure. there's a work hat in the Smithsonian. 
that's and awesome. that's cool. yeah. I have the last work hat. So he's in the Smithsonian. He's in the Smithsonian. But not NASCAR's Hall of Fame. There you go. One of the hot vapor <laughs> engines is also in the Smithsonian. <laughs> okay. But not the NASCAR Hall Your of Fame. Your move. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. When we sat down with Bobby Allison, one of the things he'd mentioned is that if Smokey hadn't been so outspoken, mm-hmm. uh, his career probably would have lasted longer and certainly... Um, he might have been able to get away with more. Sure. Uh, sure. If you have a track record of pushing the rules, they're going to look at you more closely. If you have a track record of antagonizing the powers that be, they're going to look at you more closely. Even if you didn't warrant it, they're, you're going to be retaliated against. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. He felt that part of that was just that he liked the theatrics. I don't think so. I just think that he was, he would stand up for himself. He wouldn't tolerate nonsense. And um, I think that, you know, as time went on and he continued inventing and creating things in the late 70s, early 80s, when he had developed the hot vapor engine, um, which had tremendous performance and mileage. And he was very concerned about the world that we were leaving to our children and that we were going to run out of fossil fuel. And so he was trying to do his part to contribute to that. He went through all kinds of alternate energy. He had a windmill on the top of the shop for a while that disrupted TV all around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Old man Unix windmill again. (laughs) Can't watch the game. The National Lampoons. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. He dabbled in solar energy. He tried hydrogen. He tried all these things and one by one ruled them out for whatever reason. Too cost, too expensive, too hard to maintain, whatever. Um... But he had created this hot vapor engine. And when it was presented to the motor companies, because all the major motor companies, as well as all the branches of the armed service, looked at it, his reputation for pushing the rules or cheating, as well as contaminating the pool of engineers that he might have had contact with earlier in his career, definitely worked against him. Because you have this thing with super efficiency as well as performance, but nobody would touch it. I mean, you've got a bunch of other reasons at play. People are resistant to change. A lot of retooling to make anything yeah. radical like that happen. But I'm sure his reputation played in there. Do you follow racing today? Yes. Is there a smoke eunuch out there right now? I don't know. I'm not close enough in the garage to know. Um, he thought a lot of Ray Evernham and um, his abilities. So somebody like that would probably have to weigh in more. There's there's a common opinion out there that Smokey today can't exist. There may be clever people uh, or some that are rebellious, but the corporate nature wouldn't allow it. So a guy we really look up to is Cole Pern. Mm -hmm. Wears t-shirts, not afraid to speak his mind, but he still knows how to rein himself in. Otherwise Mm -hmm. he does not have a job. Right. and, and it, they tolerate, very likely, the establishment tolerates his T-shirts and behaviors because he's successful. Without that success, he might not have that much latitude. But Cole will never say some of the things about NASCAR that Smokey said. Of course not. Um, and between Joe Gibbs and their manufacturer mm-hmm. and just the culture at large, he would never last, even if he was the best sure. crew chief out there. Sure. And in, when you talk to people who want to talk to, about Smokey, anybody who is beholden to NASCAR now, whether they work for them or travel the circus, 
they're not going to get real deep into smoky or real controversial into smoky because they're beholden to NASCAR for some way. Maybe they just need to trot out for a space to sign autographs on event days. Maybe they're actually employed and drawing their paycheck from some sanctioning body or manufacturer. They're not going there if they know the history. But you've got the people who are working in the sport right now and a lot of fans don't know who Smokey is because he's beyond their generation. So that's the reason I think there's a little bit more play, a little bit more talk because they don't know the nonsense. You know what else? Smokey was a character in Cars 3. Yeah. Disney. Yeah. Honored Smokey. Yeah. I race in a series that's owned by NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Am I going to have a little check mark next to my name when this when this comes out? I don't know. I think you guys might have the feather that you pulled getting all the good will that accompanied Alan, the publicity and the just there was so much good cheer yeah. about the story you did about him and then him riding into the hall based on that. You've probably earned an awful lot of goodwill. So I don't know. I wouldn't think so. So we're going to be right back to zero. Yeah, but we're about to blow that, and it's not on the Smokey story. <laughs> Uh-oh, okay. <laughs> Did Smokey ever uh, have any opinions on Tim Richmond by chance? He thought he was too flamboyant. Oh, oh hang on. <laughs> Where would you say the majority of his effects are out there for the people to see? Like if you wanted to go celebrate Smokey Eunuch, where could you go see things? Um, Don Garlitz really has the most public exhibit that i know of he's got a good bunch of stuff now is that because the early days stories were don got helped out by Smokey, and he just like um they were close close in proximity they were friendly and as Smokey was clearing stuff out and don was building the museum he gave him stuff um don is the reason a big part of the reason Smokey left the express plan after he was gone because he saw he appreciated Don's museum but he saw how much work and money it took to make that happen Mm -hmm. and how much time it took for the family to maintain it Mm -hmm. he didn't want that for us and that's why his quote was don't make no damn shrine (laughs) (laughs) he did not want his property made into a museum Um, like I said, he was very secure in what he had done. He was That was essentially his first big purchase here in Daytona was that piece of property. And he bought it because he was able to get financing on it, but because he knew waterfront property is always going to be worth something. Mm-hmm. And he had, there was a short window in time when you could get something called riparian rights, where you own the ground under the water out to the channel. Oh, yeah. And so the state sold those. And then realized, hey, that's a mistake. So over the years, if you were late on your property taxes or any kind of issue, they would yank your riparian rights. Uh, well, he maintained that all the way through. Nice. His property was also a heliport. Okay. So, um, you know, it, it, we got out of that about six minutes before the condo market crashed in uh, Central Florida. Wow. He was like on our shoulder. Yeah. And um, we had written into the contract that they could not make a smoky museum restaurant bar or anything and um so while he was alive it's warm here we have a big vagrant problem he would go down to the dock on the river every day walk with his dogs and take the bum stuff because they would leave it under the dock to come back tonight and throw it in the river (laughs) 
I thought this was going a different direction. Yeah, it's like I'm he was so hard. And... No, no, no. <laughs> nope. Well, if you were, if you asked him for help and you weren't drinking, yeah. he would buy you a meal. Okay. But if you just wanted money, because a lot of these guys, if you offer them yeah. a meal, no, 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 just give me the cash. Yeah, right. Well, he wouldn't do Not that. Not happening. Yeah. Um, so he'd throw the stuff in the river, and then that became my job for the next two years after he died while we were emptying out the property. So then the property sells, and we're no longer on location, and it was owned by people out of New York State, and the bums moved in. Okay. And there were like 30 bums living in this yeah. empty building. Yeah. And the city fussed at them and said, you got to do something. So they raised all of the buildings on the property except for the one little out parcel on the very corner. And I was just sure that it was because they were going to try and make a bar or restaurant or something. And um, I got a call at home one night about 10 o'clock and it was one of our local newspaper writers. And he said, did you know the shop was burning? And I just reacted and I said, oh, that's wonderful. And I was glad because it meant I don't have to defend his wishes any longer. I don't have to worry about defending this in court that they can't make a bar out there on the corner any longer. This is over. Well, of course, that got publicized that I was glad that it burned. And that wasn't the case. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) The bums got mad at each other. They were living in this little building and two of them got mad at each other. And so they torched it. One Mm -hmm. of them burned the other one out. He didn't have a home either, but. It's tough in the streets. Yeah, let's yeah. say. So, Cars 3? Mm-hmm. There's a Smokey character? Smokey was a Disney fan. Yeah. Don't really know why. Maybe it was from the advertising during the war days. Well, yeah. Disney was a proponent. Yeah. Um, you live in Florida. Well, <laughs> well but he, he was the PR guy of World War II. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, that look at all have, the propaganda. That literally may have been it. Yeah, yeah. He had a Mickey telephone. <laughs> what? Smokey you know, Eunuch had a Mickey, Mickey telephone. Mickey Mouse, push buttons. Hard ass Smokey Eunuch. Hold the yellow receiver. That was his telephone for years. Hey, Sean, what time is it? It's 11.38. <laughs> That's funny. Excellent. <laughs> Made his day. Awesome. Well, so he came home one day. Disney World opened in 72. And he came home one day and told my mom, get the kids ready. We're going to see Mickey tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <laughs> So, Dad, talk to me. <laughs> so sometime around, I don't know, the story goes 9, 10 o'clock, she's laying in bed with him, and he says, well, hell, aren't you going to pack something? And he's like, she's like, well, it's just Orlando. No, he'd planned and bought to go to Disneyland in California. Oh. So we pack up, three kids pack wow. up, fly to California, only to find out at that time that Disneyland wasn't open on Monday or whatever day we were there. Oh, wow. They weren't open yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's the Dan Ednett Fair. Yeah. yeah so Big we, moose out front, I told you. That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, I just got a call out of the blue one day from an attorney from Pixar and said, hey, we're doing Cars 3. We'd like Smokey to be a character in it. If you say no, we'll write him out. And I said, of course, you know, of course. Yeah, he right. was a Disney fan. I'm a Disney fan. Yeah. How, how cooler could that be? Is there a toy? There is. And you must have this. I do. That's awesome. You getting, you getting money off of that? No. What the? No. And everybody always asks me that, but no. <laughs> it's a voice actor. Deep, gravelly voice. Um, Chris Cooper. Oh, Chris <laughs> Cooper, voice actor, or an Academy Award nominated. Yeah, uh, you recognize I'm, that I'm guy? So sorry. No. What? 
Oh my God! Uh, have I'm, you seen Tomato? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a movie person. Okay. By any Chris stretch. Cooper's a very big deal. Okay, big well that's smoky. Yeah. Okay, so let's try this again. <laughs> Apparently he's. Oh, oh, oh there it is. is. Wait, we can't show this, can yeah. we? All right. Yes. So normally we say that uh, you know you weren't familiar with our show and you gave us the time anyway, but you actually are familiar with our show, which mm. blows our minds. How we got here? Yeah, it's actually how we got here. Yeah. Um, you uh, you've been more than happy to, to give us a, a lot of time. What were you hoping that our audience would take away from something like this? I just hoping to um, expose Smokey's legacy to more people, to a newer audience, and to people that do know him or think they know him. Maybe they've learned something tonight. <laughs> okay, um, I feel the story is important because. The drum I'm going to keep beating is that we continue to get rid of characters left and right in sure. the sport for whatever reasons, whether it's a series or corporate interest or whatever, but ultimately we're hanging ourselves mm-hmm. by not having these kind of people. Um, and I don't know how to then turn that into a question because it's just a soapbox. Well, but, we also need right. to get young people involved in cars. Eh. <laughs> You're correct. No, no, you're right. He's being smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I'd be like, I can't fix that. It's 11.45. Sean's Disney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite quote of his, like, from, like, one of his... Because, like, Google image searched yeah. his, and there's, like, a bunch of cool quotes of just racing stuff. Yeah. I, I, what he would say about racing was, let's stand on the starting line and say, all right, you sons of bitches, let's have a race. You should sell a shirt that says that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Style the stuff. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. I think we're good. All right. I mean, we can go for another three hours if you yeah, want. Yeah, I got another three hours in me. Let's fire it up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hit record now. Meow, 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 meow. I'm finished. All right. Once again, that was Trish Eunuch telling stories of Smokey Eunuch. And you can learn more about this on Amazon Prime, episode number two, which will be coming out during the Thanksgiving weekend. Give it a view if it's out yet. And please tag Continental and let them know how much you appreciate them allowing us to do this kind of nonsense. Also, if you really like the story, once again, buy it at SmokeyEunuch.com. While there are several places you can purchase the book from, SmokeyEunuch.com is the one that benefits the Eunuch family the most. And that's the one that we would really, really push because uh, his daughter Trish and the entire Eunuch family were extremely gracious in this whole process. And, and we want to repay them the best we can. So let her know. Buy a book. It is one of the craziest reads you might ever have. And now to close out the episode, we're going to play the same song that closes episode number two on Amazon Prime. This is a band called Valley of Wolves. And the song is called Reckless. clouds on a rainy day Oh, the fire in the hills and I'm headed your way Oh, it's alright, baby, don't be afraid I'm just giving heads up from a dangerous ways And I know
gunpowder in a shell looking for the lead. I'm the proof and the poison running through your head. I'm reckless and I can't help 